1: Hello and welcome back to Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. Here's why you should tune in to today's episode. The EU has taken a major step towards crypto regulation. We'll explain what it means and what it includes when it all kicks in. Plus, a deep dive into the world of cross-chain networks. Andrew Cahill from The Block will join us live to explain how they work and what lessons have been learned from various hacks. Hi, everybody. I'm Elaine Lee, your friendly crypto host and producer at Real Vision. Ash Bennington is back in the house. And hello to Ash's mom, who is watching. Ash, how are we <laughs> doing today?
2: Doing great, Elaine. Thanks. Welcome. Great to be back with you.
1: Excellent. Now, don't forget to subscribe to Real Visions Crypto, everyone. It's If you're watching on YouTube, smash the like button, go ahead and subscribe and hit the notification bell so you don't miss it when we go live. All right, now let's jump straight into the latest price action. Looking at the charts today, it's a sea of red across the major cryptocurrencies. Bitcoin has once again dipped below the 19,000 mark. Now, last time that happened, that was in September. Now, according to CoinShares, digital asset investment products saw net outflows, totaling $5 million last week after three consecutive weeks of net inflows. However, Bitcoin saw a fourth consecutive week of net inflows. Ash, how is Ethereum looking?
2: Well, and CoinShare shows data that unlike Bitcoin, Ethereum saw minor net outflows last week. In terms of the price, we're seeing similar moves for Bitcoin and Ethereum today. Ethereum is down, trading below the $1,300 level. There's also interesting data around stable coins the market cap of usdc the second largest stable coin by market cap which is issued by circle coindesk points out that usdc's market cap has fallen below the 50 billion dollar mark for the first time since the collapse of terra it's now at its lowest level since january and usdc's big gains since may have all been erased you can see it here on the chart USDC versus Tether on a year to date basis. Tether, of course, remains the largest stablecoin by market cap.
1: All right. Thanks, Ash. Now, when talking about stable coins, many analysts speak of regulation in the same breath. And we've had some major developments on that front, which brings us to our top story today. Now, the European Union is getting closer to a comprehensive crypto regulation. Lawmakers on the Economic and Monetary Affairs Committee voted 28 to 1 to approve the so-called MICA, Markets in Crypto Assets Regulation, on Monday. Ash, what is in this and what's the reaction been like?
2: Well, Lane, the, the major advantage of MICA is that it allows providers of wallets and other crypto services to market themselves across the entire European Union block. According to Coindesk reporting, providers just need to register with national authorities, meet minimum guarantee standards uh, intended to protect investors and maintain market stability. Coindesk further reports that European crypto industry has broadly welcome these rules there's some concerns over restrictions on stable coins as well as uncertainties about whether the rules will or will not apply to nfts but generally the reaction from the industry has been broadly positive elaine
1: now as a former european i know that things move quite slowly so when can we expect that to sort of kick in
2: yeah, it's a good point. The legislative process is not over in Europe. While it's widely expected uh, the bill will become law, there are still a few stages left of the ratification. Now that MICA has been approved on the committee level, the entire European Parliament will vote on it. Coindesk reports is expected by the end of the year. That is, the vote is expected by the end of the year. Implementation remains a few years away, with the final go-live date projected at, ju- at 2024, Elaine. So another two years or so.
1: All right, so look we'll have a deep dive uh, more of a conversation into regulation on Thursday with Ari Redwood so make sure to tune in for that one and I think I'm hosting on that one on Thursday as well now like good global cr- uh, crypto citizens of the world we head over to Asian now Coinbase has announced that it has been granted as in principle approval from Singapore for a license as a major payments institution Coinbase says that this will allow to offer regulated digital payment token products and services Ash now we've heard heard from Samuel Berg yesterday, Dubai is competing to become a leading crypto hub. But it seems that Singapore is not going down without a fight. Is that how you see it?
2: Yeah, that's right, Elaine. According to the block, more than a dozen crypto firms are already operating inside Singapore, including Paxos. Crypto.com, and DBS Vickers. Notably, Coinbase's rival Binance pulled out of Singapore last year. Licensed firms are regular, are registered uh, there and have to comply with specific requirements, uh, anti-money laundering and anti-terrorist financing protections, uh, to name just two. Also, the approval in principle is not, is not yet final, so there's more work ahead for Coinbase, Elaine.
1: As always, now the final news story that we're looking at today is the predicament of OKX coming out of in Russia. So the Seychelles-based crypto exchange has been criticized for continuing to operate in Russia despite Western sanctions. Now, its website has apparently been blocked by the state media monitoring service. Our very own Samuel Burke, who is also Real Vision's managing uh, editor, is in Dubai for us on the ground for the World Blockchain Summit. He asked Haider Rafik, global chief, marketing officer at OKX, about the very situation.
0: OKX had taken some criticism for continuing to, to operate uh, in Russia or with Russian clients. Now, actually, in the, in the past week, your site hasn't been operational there, according to reports, because of the Russian government. What's the status there and what do you think will happen?
3: Well, look, I think, philosophically, we're not in the business of politics. We're in the business of financial access and mobility. Uh, it's not for us to decide which people in which part of the world get to access these things and not. I think we can all agree healthcare should be universal. Everyone should have access to good healthcare. Everyone should have access to communications. You should be able to connect with your family, friends, and peers. And then, just in the same way, I think everyone should have financial access everywhere. So it's not for us to decide whether we block Russia or not. Now in specifically the Russia case, for us, our applications on Android and uh, Apple App Store are functional. People's funds are safe. I can tell you this, that we are working with the prosecutor's office, and we're trying to figure out what really happened, what uh, led them to block our domain. Uh, We haven't received any notice, but what I can tell you is this week, our legal teams, our compliance teams are working with the Uh, local russian authorities to try and figure out we always try and work with the local governments we take a very common sense approach and we will continue to service customers in russia there's uh there's no sort of uh you know appetite for us to block them
1: look at our boy sam you're rocking out his finest suit on the stage there ash what do you make of this
2: you know, Elaine, I don't really know what to make of it, to be honest with you. You know, look, there's obviously an innumerable uh, n- a number of jurisdictions out there. You know, just as an example, if Mongolia or Guyana sanctioned a bank and you ask me, Ash, what do you make of this? The answer probably would be like, I don't I don't know. I don't have a clue. And yet in the crypto space, when you see uh, Russia, for example, sanctioning OKC, you know, we're expected to have a take on it because there is this sort of global framework in which crypto exists. And, and that's the world that we live in, which is obviously incredibly globalized. But there is something uh, on precisely the this point that I did find interesting. This is coming out of uh, OKX, and I want to read this quote for you, quote, we do not recommend using a VPN when accessing OKX, as this will trigger our risk controls and can lead to a ban of our account. This is really an interesting point here. If you're not able to access uh, exchanges via VPN, it really does, uh, I think in some ways, Sort of cut down on the international access use case, at least at the exchange level, at least using current technologies. It's an interesting point, something people should bear in mind, particularly if they're interacting uh, with exchanges in a jurisdiction where there is a potential sanctions issue, Elaine.
1: Yeah, look, don't don't mess with the beast if you know it's not tamed, right? Well, Ash, that's it for today's news. I'm going to hand it over to you for your interview with Andrew. And of course, I'll be back here with the key takeaways at the end. I'll see you soon. I'll see you both soon.
2: <laughs> Thanks, Elaine. We're joined now by Andrew Cahill, Research Director for Reports at The Block. Welcome to the show, Andrew.
0: How you doing, Ash? Happy to be here.
2: Well, it's great to have you back. Andrew, big report out from the block about an incredibly hot topic right now, interoperability networks infrastructure for the multi-chain future. That's the title of the report. Andrew, why this report and why now?
0: Yeah, you know, I think look, looking at the market, um, probably the biggest thing over the past year that, that happened, I think was kind of in the layer one space. We wrote a report about it um, probably about a year and a half ago where we saw a bunch of different chains launching, um that really gained some material adoption so this uh you know the world where all users and applications reside on one blockchain has kind of like gone away and at this point it's pretty evident um, that there are going to be multiple blockchains love it or hate it um but for the foreseeable future that's that's going to be uh the state of the market and and we're going to need solutions that let people move you know value and information between these different networks in a pretty right. seamless way, right? Cause this is, it all comes back to user experience. Um, you know.
2: Andrew, so I was reading through this report this morning. It's a thick report. I think it's over 65 pages long. We've done something really cool here on Real Vision for this show. You've picked five of the top graphics, five of the top charts. Walk us through those and walk us through this report.
0: Sure, yeah. So I think that the most logical starting point here is just to kind of try and quantify um, this ri- this rise of these many blockchains. Um, so if you look at this first graphic here, we kind of plot out how around 2015, Ethereum was really the only kind of blockchain network that allowed you to do a bunch of different things. So you could do payments on it, you can do exchanges, you can do lending. Recently, we've seen you can do NFTs, um, but then there's been kind of like three separate waves of, of new chains launching and with each one, we've seen kind of more and more traction. So this chart really just shows how if you look at the native tokens of these networks uh the aggregate value has just increased um you know by by a lot right so i think on the left side this says about 60 million dollars the market cap of ethereum in 2015. now if you look at all these platforms it's around 315 billion um and this is just does not include you know like we came on before and talked about layer two networks and there's also a bunch of other layer one networks that have yet to launch so i don't know if you heard about like aptos and sui but there are two kind of projects that were spun out of this facebook dm project that have generated a lot of buzz and and, and raised yeah. a lot of money so i think this the first point to make is that there are a lot of chains and there will probably be more blockchains
2: yeah and just the the past growth over a seven year time horizon pretty significant adding you know hundreds of billions of dollars in total aggregate market capitalization or network value it's been an impressive trajectory
0: absolutely yeah and, and even if you look at uh, prices today, where they're at, they're obviously down tremendously, but the amount of, of value that was created in this layer one space has really been right. pretty incredible.
2: Let's move on to the next chart, secular trends, more crypto assets. Walk us through what we're looking at right here, Andrew.
0: Yeah. So I think just kind of in tandem with that first part is that not only do you have, you know, more blockchains uh, that have launched, you also have more assets that are being issued on these blockchains, right? So this chart provides a pretty simple comparison. So the bars represent um, just the number of raw crypto assets that are tracked by CoinMarketCap.com as a data provider. And then the right access, that line chart shows the total crypto market cap. And the biggest takeaway is pretty much that bull or bear every year, the number of crypto assets has gone up. And 2022 is a good example because the market's been so terrible and we've seen them more than double the number of And just to know, these are like fungible crypto assets, right? So at the time of writing the report, there were also about 36 billion NFTs was kind of the number that um, we had. So just a secular trend that you don't want to bet against is that not only are there going to be more chains, there's going to be more assets. And we don't even know what kind of assets could eventually kind of be tokenized on these different chains. Um, Right. So Andrew, just looking
2: at this chart with you here, I mean, a couple of striking points. First, uh, that that number in the upper right-hand corner that you see, twenty thousand plus uh, different types of crypto assets in 2022. If you look at the way those, uh, if you look at the way those bars rise, that looks to me like an exponential curve, increasing at an increasing rate. Uh, you see that very clearly when you start out back in 2013 at 67 and marching up to 20,000 here. The other interesting point about this is the number of assets only rises, but of course the total valuation of those assets, uh, which I think is the pink line there on this chart, obviously declines. That's a reflection of what we see right now in crypto winter. Talk a little bit about that relationship between the number of assets versus market cap and what you get from this chart in terms of your takeaways.
0: Yeah, I, I think the biggest thing is that the the one thing you don't wanna bet against is is more assets being launched, right? right? Someone's always going to have, it could be an incredibly like innovative, uh, invention that needs a token. It could be a project that doesn't need a token at all, but people are going to launch them and they're going to be on a bunch of different chains. And that's kind of irrespective of, of what price is doing. I think obviously when prices are good, there's a lot more interest in general. Like if you look at DeFi metrics and what have you, like all the numbers are up when prices are up kind of, but this is one interesting kind of data point where um like you can see in 2021 the crypto market cap we had here around like what is that two and a half trillion down to around one um and we've still seen the number of of assets on coin market cap you know more than double um right
2: well that really is in many ways the sort of perfect segue the perfect thesis statement for why this report is important right now
0: absolutely yeah um so I think all, all of this is coming to a head and um we're starting to see a lot of innovation at, at, at the base layer of the tech stack, right? Where you have all these different chains that are that are actually trying to do different things. I think in the earlier days, you saw a lot of you know, copy paste jobs that were done somewhat sloppily. Um, but now you're seeing these teams with you know, significant venture backing and also like token market, cap like floats that are material, right? Like if you have a liquid market cap uh, of your token that's in the tens of billions of dollars, you have a lot more flexibility in terms of what you can do in terms of like incentivizing people to build on your chain or or funding other you know infrastructure picks and shovels around the edges to kind of get people on and off these these platforms. Um, and I guess the, the next starting point would be to kind of talk about um, just to kind of get it over with with the interoperability story would be all of the the hacks that have taken place. Well, this
2: is an incredibly important point. And let's just move on to that next chart here that illustrates precisely that point. Quantifying the tough lessons learned, top blockchain bridge exploits. Obviously, uh, this is about the security incidents we've seen in the space. Some eye bulging numbers in the rightmost column there. Andrew, walk us through it.
0: Yeah. So um, as you see here, this is, you know, our, our number was that in about the past 18 months, we've seen over $2 $2 billion worth of funds that were misappropriated is probably the right number. So these are funds that are at one point exploited. Some of them have been returned by hackers. Some of them have been instances where like a development organization or a financial backer has stepped in and pretty much made everyone whole. Um, yeah, this is the but, sort of
2: these are two sort of two really interesting points that you make here. Uh, so that are really quite unique to this space. I would say the first is the idea that people occasionally give these funds back. Uh, they receive something of a bug bounty, I guess is the polite term for it. For uh, for sort of you know testing the network and finding the exploit, they return the funds. This is something that's to me, fascinating about the ethos of the space. Uh, nobody else gives money back when we see uh, theft uh, or exploits in the traditional financial world. And the second point that you bring up is also an interesting one, which is the idea that they're occasionally backstopped by venture capitalists who are attempting to support the value of the network. Tell us a little bit about both of those unusual crypto-specific phenomena.
0: Yeah, so I think I think the first one with people returning the funds is just a very idiosyncratic thing, right? It's gonna depend on, on the nature of the hack. Um, I think the biggest one was like the Poly Network, where someone, it was literally one hacker who, who stole all like $600 million and ended up returning it um, right. to the company. With something like Nomad, we've kind of seen a similar uh, phenomenon where um, that one's kind of interesting because that one, there, you know, they traced it to about like, I think 300 separate blockchain addresses that participated in that hack. So they, you've seen a fair amount of money like flow back. I think at the time it's, right now it's around like 35 million of that 190 that were stolen that have like come back into the bridge. Um but it's kind of an interesting uh scenario because you have these trustless technologies but then at the same right. time when one of these things gets hacked, there is a legal entity somewhere that is going to work with, you know, a blockchain analysis firm to try and get this money back and they're also going to contact law enforcement, right? So, um there are like a lot of different moving parts um and it's kind of interesting to see that these white hats, giving the money back has been such a, a big um, a big phenomenon.
2: Yeah, the, the white hat phenomenon is just a fascinating one. Is, as you say, idiosyncratic, incredibly specific to this space. We should point out, I believe the exploits listed in millions of dollars there is the total exploits uh, at the time of the hack and not... The total outstanding loss, meaning as you say, uh this idea that the White Hats have given some of this money back, that number uh then can be smaller because of the ret- some of the returned funds.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. If you look at something like the Ronin exploit, so like a couple weeks after that happened, um they announced a pretty big funding round. I think it was about 150 million dollars to kind of make people whole. Um, but it was not really until about I think three months later in like June 28th that they actually returned the funds. And while on this chart, you see the initial exploit was around $600 million because prices had gone down so much between the hack. And then uh, it was only about like $200 million, $250 million that they had to return in terms of like the native units of the actual currencies in question. So there's a lot of moving parts. Uh, to all yeah, this and ta-
2: talking of which, if you're if you're following this, you're relatively new to the space and you're getting a little bit lost in the weeds, trying to figure out the link between what we've been talking about to the security exploits. The idea here is that this is a significant challenge in the space, how to securely transfer assets across chain. As you can see here, uh, looking at this table, obviously some significant losses, hundreds of millions of dollars in bridge exploits. The idea is that this report is about the technologies intended to solve precisely this challenge.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I don't think we have a chart included here, but I encourage folks to read the report because we did, before presenting this chart, kind of lay out um, pretty much like five different security mechanisms that underpin all of these like interoperability networks. So if you're trying to move information value from one blockchain to another, there are pretty much five different ways um, that that is operationalized which plays into like these risks, right? So if you look at these hacks, some of them you can trace back to like, oh, this mechanism that was in place was pretty primitive and it was very centralized and someone was able to kind of exploit that. In other cases, you've seen, which is kind of a more prominent, is that um, when the actual technology was deployed, there was a vulnerability in it that was um, exploited, that's independent of kind of those more fundamental security assumptions underpinning it. Um, So there's... A lot of audits going on to kind of prevent that second um, instance which I chatted about, but it is still kind of one of those like lingering unknowns.
2: Let's take a look at our next chart here, sizing up the emerging cross-chain economy, cross-chain transfer volume in millions of dollars per month. Give us a sense, obviously, these are some of the technologies that we're talking about here. Uh, What is it that we're looking at? What are the technologies involved and why do you feel it's significant?
0: Sure. Yeah. So this 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 table just shows on a on a monthly basis how much money. So each of these uh, networks connects several different blockchains to another. So in the report, we kind of flagged that it was between five and fifty. So something like IBC in here connects fifty individual blockchains, and the numbers in this column pretty much represent how much money on a monthly basis was moving between all these different blockchains in aggregate. So it's kind of like how much. It's the size of the cross-chain economy is kind of how we, how we phrased it. Um, and right. I think the biggest takeaway that I had putting this data together was like, wow, these numbers are really big, right? If you look at- Yeah, um, to, perci-
2: to precisely that point, when you scan down there to that last row, total YTD, these are expressed in millions of dollars. So when you see on IBC, the number of 53,196, is that $53 billion?
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's correct. And there's also a couple um, other ones that are not listed in here that we didn't have time series for. So among those are like multi-chain poly network um, and connects, which I'd encourage people to read the report to kind of see those figures, but they've also put up some, some very large numbers. Um, The other thing that's just just sort
2: of eyeballing the chart that's interesting is that you see uh, this actually pretty significant decline across the board from January through August. Is that related to a decrease in volume uh, and also a decrease in valuation due uh, to the crypto winter obviously suppressed price period that we find ourselves in right now, Andrew?
3: Yeah,
0: I I think it's definitely, you know, somewhat market driven. And I think if there's one event to point to, it's probably the Terra Collapse. Um, so if you look in this chart, like after May, it really dropped off across all of these different chains, right? So there was a lot of money moving back and forth um, involved with with everything that happened around the Terra ecosystem, you know? Right. Um, but I think even looking back, like the fact that um, the numbers are this high is, is really um, kind of striking. You know, people always think of bridging as like a, a one-off of, of people like moving money from one chain to another for... One opportunity but clearly I mean 10 billion dollars is is a lot of money to move across chain
2: yeah and what this table shows you in the aggregate is when you're getting near the hundred billion dollar mark back of the envelope numbers here this is pretty significant I mean a tenth of a trillion dollars in value move uh, in a in a 12 month period or actually I should say in an eight month period when we've seen declines in volume declines in valuations pretty pretty striking isn't it
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I think it kind of begs the question, looking at this is um, kind of what happens on, on the native token side, right? So um, a lot of these networks have yet to launch native tokens. Um, so kind of seeing seeing how the economics of this could evolve or could be pretty interesting, right? Like, because you're starting with a pretty big pie, right? If your pie is $10 billion of, of volume, um, that's just like a very large revenue base that you can do a lot with with a token, you know, so it's, it's still very early and, and we haven't seen a lot of these tokens launch, but that's another kind of aspect that comes into play with something like this is that if people want to move money from chain A to chain B to do something, it's probably a pretty inelastic demand, meaning that they're going to pay whatever they need to, to kind of get it done. Um, and then when you think about if you're, you know, one of these networks and you're trying to cultivate a community, you have already a large base of like organic, um, adoption to kind of work off of, which is something that can't be said for a lot of these other, like kind of layer ones that have to build their own base of applications and users and, and all that good stuff.
2: Yeah. Well said let's move on to the fifth and final chart. That looks like a snapshot from the web space telescope. What do we got here?
0: Yeah, sure. So the, these are just two visualizations. Um, on the left is a visualization of axilar. Um, and on the right is, is map of zones. And these are just kind of two things that we came across in our research that, We thought it would be really interesting for the audience to poke around. I mean, I had a ton of fun looking at these kind of things, because you can really see the architecture of the networks, right? So if you look at the chain, the the diagram on the right, for instance, with uh, Cosmos, you can see that some of these individual chains have emerged as kind of like hubs, where they have connections to a bunch of different chains in the space, whereas some of them kind of reside more at the fringes and are connected to all the other chains through a number of connections, right? You can really see... How the network is constructed and you can also kind of see all the different flows between the different chains which for, for me was like something that's really cool like not only can like seeing blockchain data on one chain is is cool in and of itself but then to look at something like see like oh wow here's all this value and information that's flowing between these two all these different in the case of cosmos it's about 50 right. um in real time it's just something that's really cool to to kind of look at and poke around
2: Well, you know, it's interesting uh, what it really looks like, maybe even more than a space telescope photo. It looks like a network topology map. You've got a a kind of many-to-many relationship on the right uh, when you're looking at the Cosmos map of zones. And on the left, and I think that's Axelar, it looks more like a star topology where everything essentially is routed back uh, to the central token or the central protocol. Talk a little bit about the difference between these two visual representations of uh, Cosmos and Axelar.
0: Yeah sure so this is this is somewhat related to um kind of that initial security point that I, that I flagged so there are like five different mechanisms that that kind of underpin these and based on that kind of drives this topology right so with something like axelar um who just to note they they did commission this report um with someone like them uh they have their own independent blockchain right so all messages kind of go in and out of that that one blockchain and it's kind of backstopped by a similar proof of stake mechanism that you'd see on like Ethereum. So post-merge Ethereum, the security of that is very similar to kind of what Axelar uh, uses, where on the right you see Cosmos, all of these chains have more of like peer-to-peer connections. And that's because the security underpinning these is like we what we deemed internally verified. Um, so the long and short of it is that like the way these Cosmos chains are architected, um, there is kind of like an out-of-the-box solution for them to kind of sync up on a peer-to-peer basis, which is not the case um, with all these different chains that that someone like an Axelar is kind of connecting.
2: Yeah, so we've really dipped down here into the weeds, unpacked the meat of this report. For people uh, who are watching this right now, who may have gotten a little bit lost, give us the big picture overview, your key takeaways from this report that you think folks in the space need to know.
0: Yeah, I think, I think the, the biggest one would probably be um, security. Like, I think that's an important consideration. All the headlines that have been made around interoperability have been very negative around, you know, exploits and what have you. But I think as, as the data in this report kind of showcases, there are some, you know, really secular trends in motion, call it the number of blockchains, the number of crypto assets. And then when you pair that with something like, you know, $10 billion of of money moving cross chain on a monthly basis, um, there is a certain trend in one way, and that and that trend is, you know, many blockchains existing, and them needing solutions to, trans, like to transfer money and information across them, um, in a way that doesn't introduce a lot more risk, right? Um, and we've seen that many of the ways that it has been done historically have introduced a lot more risk.
2: Yes, indeed. Fascinating visuals, fascinating data, fascinating report. Andrew, this was fantastic. We've got to have you back again. You guys at The Block have lots of reports. At Real Vision, we've got lots of shows. We gotta do this more often.
0: Awesome, yeah. Love coming on and and we're happy. Yeah, we're working on a bunch of other stuff, so um, yeah.
2: Let's bring Elaine Lee back into the conversation. Elaine.
1: Gosh, that was was top notch, geeky, freaky stuff. But you know what? Thank God we have the best team out here to break it all down for you. Our boy Marco is in the back to pop, lop and drop all these key points from the interview that we just heard and well look this is what we've picked up so a multi-chain world this um the first is the idea of a multi-chain world as andrew said in 2015 it was only ethereum but since then there's been three waves of different chains launching adding to that the total crypto market cap is growing bull or bear crypto markets have grown up andrew says, so it's clear we're moving to multiple chains whether you love it or you hate it and this is the most important important because the blockchain economy that we're building will require many chains to scale and deliver the best experiences for users fingers crossed on that one now moving on to cross chain risk we talk about but let me just that say that, real well, quick you- elaine
2: when you say when you say bull it. bear the, it, it, the crypto markets have gone up you're talking about the number of total tokens obviously the valuations uh, have collapsed we're off about 70 percent here uh year to date or excuse me from from November 21 high, from the peaks in Bitcoin uh, or thereabouts, right now. Obviously, we've seen significant price declines. We're talking about the the rise in the number of tokens.
1: Wicked stuff there, Ash. Okay. Now picking up, going back to cross chain risk. The next, the next is cross chain risk. That's the risk when transferring value and information from one blockchain to another. Now, Andrew walked us through recent bridge exploits, which in the past 18 months has resulted in over two billions dollars lost. Now, Andrew also talked about this interesting phenomenon only in crypto, white hat hackers, where hackers return funds, as you mentioned as well, Ash, and um, the bug bounties and uh, where he mentions bug bounties and backstopping by VCs and the five main courses um, of security issues. And that brings us to the final key takeaway, cross-chain economy and interoperability protocols. Andrew highlighted just how huge the cross-chain economy truly is. We're talking in the tens of billions, the IBC chain alone had 53 billion, and this is including the effects of the terror collapse. Can you imagine how high the numbers would be without that? This is where we're headed. And looking at those visualizations of AlexaScan and map of zero zones, um, the connection between these networks is massive, further confirming the importance of cross-chain interoperability protocols as a critical infrastructure for this brave new world." Again, great conversation, guys. Those are the key takeaways. Did we miss anything?
2: I think you nailed it all, Len.
1: (laughs) We try. Now moving on to the final segment of the show, I hope the, the Daily Disco Discord has some viewer questions. Do we have any questions? hold on I'm just waiting for uh, my producers to see if they're going to tell me if we have any questions
2: right right now the is... audience is is cogitating and stewing on this on all of this great data from the report
1: that was a lot right there well i think there's no viewer questions for today boo to that but that's it for today and thank you guys so for the ones who are watching don't forget to subscribe rv crypto is absolutely free those of you watching on youtube smash everything go ahead and hit the like button hit the subscribe button hit the bell Tomorrow, we have Mona El Issa from Avantgarde to talk all things DeFi. Join us tomorrow at 12 p.m. Eastern. That's 9 a.m. on the West Coast, 5 p.m. in London, and midnight in Hong Kong. Live on Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. We'll see you again same time tomorrow.